This is the Straight Dope, episode 84. I'm going to try using a pre-roll and then an interview and then later on maybe a post-roll. But for the pre-roll now, the reason I'm doing this is because I have now got two podcasts. The Straight Dope podcast, which you've tuned into and you're about to hear an interview with a friend of mine who is a cadre or an instructor at the Special Forces Sniper Course. And we're talking about things he learned and applications that could be used by every shooter, i.e., everyone who listens to this, that he's learned over his career doing this for the last 18 years and 10 years as a special forces sniper, which is pretty cool. I also started the subcast for subscribers. It is a private podcast that's going to break down all of the training goals, all of the exercises, details, and numbers that you would get from a Riflecraft subscription because they have it. If you're a subscriber, you get all of that. So we're going to talk about numbers, metrics, and then further takeaways and further parts from interviews that I'm going to do on this podcast, but in a way that I like to crunch them at a little bit higher level, a little bit nerdier, and a little, in a little bit more detail talking some specifics. And so because of that, and because I have wanted to interview friends and people from my life that have experiences that we don't have, I thought this would be a good breakaway to start. And so you can support this podcast just by sharing it and listening it. You can also support it by subscribing. And not only do you get access to the website, you get emails from me, the subcoms emails with targets, training tools, and communications via email so that you can respond directly with questions. And now you're going to get that exclusive podcast that's sent and linked to your email so that you can take your training and your understanding or just knowledge to an extended level. And I wanted to be able to offer that. Lastly, being able to support the podcast through getting stuff that helps you uh, is another way. And right now, the best way to do that is to go to milehighshooting.com and buy ammo. They've got a 10% off sale going on right now. So not only do they have competitive prices on factory ammo, they've got Hornady, they've got Federal, they've got Burger, they've got loading equipment, and they have uh, loading accessories. Mile High has the certificates that allows them to ship gunpowder. So if you want Vita Vore powder, Hogden powder, you name it, bullets, they can just mail it to your doorstep. So check out milehighshooting.com. If you want to email Randy at milehighshooting.com and tell him that I sent you there, uh, that would go a long way. Or if whoever you call or whoever you put your order in or in the, in the notes, put that. And um, that would be pretty nifty. I would appreciate it. I'm going to talk about some more stuff that they have there for sale in future podcasts, but I just wanted to knock that off and let you know that that is another way to do it, just simply by going out and buying the stuff that you need to shoot through, essentially, you know, my local shooting store. They're less than 10 minutes from my house. I know the owners, Randy and Diane, they have a network of employees and they do good stuff. They support the shooting community. They've got prizes on all of the local prize tables and national prize tables for the events that are linked to them as sponsors. They do huge things in shooting, and I couldn't be happier than to help support them, support shooters, support competitions, and law enforcement and military. They are huge supporters of those communities and do a lot to help them out. So 
check it out, check them out, and let's get to the interview. So um, maybe maybe you can kind of walk me through your thought process on the different approach to a long range shooter and and the elements that you've noticed help students like achieve success that might be different or what things you've cut out of your pipeline because you just weren't seeing people becoming as successful as quickly. Okay. Actually I got a good, uh, what we used to do and what we do now. So when I went through the course about 10 years ago, we used to have to shoot in. So for the shoot in process, uh, you'd get an M4 with iron sights and you'd have to group, I think it was a minute and a quarter, uh, shooting iron sights on five different, you had to hit three out of the five sub minute and a quarter groups. And I think you had five minutes to do it or something like that. And, you know, if you didn't hit three out of five, you actually didn't start the course. And so the, the purpose of it was, uh, Hey, let's do this because it'll show shooting fundamentals on day one. Right. Cause it's, you know, this, whenever you get a new shooter, a new guy behind the gun, um, you know, sometimes that day one, day two, day three, their whole, you know, their partners give them the right wind call, everything's singing true. And then they break that shot and they miss point four off the right side. And you're looking down range and you're like, that was the shooter. You know, you, you threw that shot off. The guy gave you a great wind call. Everything should have sounded true. Well, the hope was, hey, if we have these guys prove some basic fundamentals at the beginning, you know, it'll, it'll make that process faster. Well, in 13, we had the sequesterization where the government kind of shut down. So they didn't send anybody home when anybody failed it. And so they started to be able to track this data of, okay, what is a guy who shoots in versus a guy who hits one out of five? And by the end of the course, it made no difference to their standing in order by how they finished the course. And I think that, I I believe, is because, like you're saying, like fundamentals are absolutely necessary. But over a few days on the range, I can get most people to break good shots. Just, just, Just with simple training, I can get them to break good shots. The problem is, just like you said, it's downrange. It's 600 meters. It's what's the wind doing? You know, what's your holdover? Have you set the rifle up correctly? Have you continued to monitor torque settings and suppressor shifts and stuff like that? You know, the things that go into making a 700 meter shot, I think for maybe like you and I, sometimes we get a little lost on how easy it can be. And then you start to think about all the subtasks that have to be accomplished to get there, that a good trigger press is required. And it's something that I think you can, you can train. And so this adage, it was kind of a fallacy. They said, hey, if they shoot in, they'll be better shooters. And then by the end of the course, it's like, well, everyone shoot pretty good after two weeks. You know, whether you shot five out of five or three out of five by two weeks in, they're all shooting pretty well because they're getting the reps. They're getting, you know, that like over the shoulder, watching trigger squeeze, you know, type of, of situation. You know, instructors, hey, go dry fire 10 times because you're not breaking good shots. And we'll fix it right there. And then suddenly it's a thinking game, which is, I think, why long range shooting I did a lot of like CQB, you know, CMMS marksmanship, that 25 and in type stuff. I still enjoy it. But to me, I like the thought process of like, it's a problem. Every shot's a problem, which leads me to say like, it's always in our game, quality over quantity. You know, if you come off the range, these guys, even today, they're only going to shoot on this uh, moving targets. They'll probably only shoot to maybe 50, 60 rounds, but every shot is watched, monitored and kind of discussed, you know, to a point. Sometimes you got to let them, get on their own but i i really think that that stuff like that's what really rounds it out like you're saying like like frank's probably saying every shot's a problem how are you solving that problem yeah okay so 
I'm going to, I'm going to include that, but I, I do for the listener's sake, uh, want to back up just a, just a second. And I normally don't do introductions, but we just jumped right into it. I don't, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be extremely in depth, but you mentioned that you're teaching students. You mentioned that you're teaching a course. I think people can gather kind of the scope and context, but, but maybe back up from, from near to far, you know, who you are, where you teach, what your background is. And, and then we'll jump into how that applies to competition shooters and people interested in marksmanship, particularly because I think, you know, we're, we're kind of synced up in the fact that we both believe wholeheartedly that you can train more or less anybody to shoot well if you focus on particular measurable elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've had that discussion before. Yeah. I, wow. It's the hardest one, right? Introduce yourself. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess that joined the military in 05, uh, ended up in special forces at about 12 and then sniper qualified, uh, special force sniper qualified in 13. And then, uh, you know, ran on the teams for a while. Um, and then ended up teaching right now is my last year teaching at the uh, special force sniper course, uh, for Bragg. And, uh, about three years ago, I finally had the time. I've always wanted to, I finally had the time to get into competitive shooting. So, uh, I'm not by any means an old competitive shooter, but, uh, I have, uh, I invested a lot into it. I think kind of like a lot of guys, I tried PRS for a little bit and I do enjoy that type of shooting too. It's not bad, but the team matches is really where, you know, I really enjoy it, especially team matches with some kind of physical component. I just think that that's, uh, that's where it's been at. So, you know, shot mammoth, shot the vortex sniper challenge, uh, the, the suck. And then like even Brian Morgan hosted a competitive competition up at hack Creek a couple of years ago. Uh, that was, uh, called the nasty. So it was, I mean, super lucky to participate in that one too. So that's kind of been like my, my overall shooting background. Excellent. Excellent. And we recently ran into each other at the competition dynamics Burris team challenge. And, uh, you know, I think that I talk a lot about that style. I really do like team competitions. It adds an element. I think that, you know, when it resonates with somebody, you know, it right away, right? You're, you're there with a friend, you're having fun. You're combining like the shooting, the moving, the communicating and some sort of physical element. I think that, um, you know, my background as an athlete and your background as a special forces soldier can intimidate some listeners into thinking that you have to be some sort of, um, you know, pre-existing athlete or, or somebody that really likes, you know, pain and suffering. And I, and I, <laughs> and I try to encourage people not to think about it that way, but it's pretty hard when it's only coming out of, uh, channels broadcasting, you know, guys like you and I, um, but, but maybe, maybe just to reinforce that or, or shit, maybe you disagree, but, but I, I think that when I see people at the competition dynamics events or the team matches, a lot of people that are pretty successful aren't necessarily the most athletic. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody could probably get into it. Would you, would you agree that, that even though they're physical, they're not necessarily like CrossFit competitions or, or, or like super high level athleticism. It's just moving. 
Uh, yeah, I, yeah, you and I are on the same page there. I, I, I have actually, uh, you talked about being intimidated. He's a really good shooter, good, good friend of mine. Uh, he shot that the Guardian team match down in South Carolina when they hosted at this old nuclear facility. Really, really cool place, cool event. And he said when he showed up and he saw us kind of in a circle, it was his first kind of like team match like that. He said, man, I was so intimidated. I was like, this is your guys' world. You guys are going to really kick butt here. And, you know, he ended up beating us all, right? I mean, he's, he has no, he's a farmer, right? <laughs> so I think you're right. Like people are, can be intimidated by these matches. And really, I think you got it. Like the ones I compete in, they're not overly physical. Yes, you have to move. Yes, you have to get around. But at the end of the day, they're shooting matches paramount, right? And then a little bit of physicality. I think that physicality kind of, that's, you know, I really do enjoy. I like that order. Like I want a really good shooting match that is also a little physical, I think some of the matches out there, I think more like uh, maybe some of the like the short range stuff can be ultra physical. Like I see them like doing, you know, heavy deadlifts and carrying around heavy bags with a little bit of shooting, right? <laughs> so I like the yeah. other way around. I'm a huge proponent of trying to remind people that at least in my, my realm, you really can't go out into nature. You really can't go anywhere without, with a rifle, without having to first of all move and carry it even if it's even if it's going to hunt pigs in in texas you know you got to move it to a side by side at least right or to a truck and then you can get around and you have to be able to locate your target you have to be able to range your target and then you have to be able to shoot your target and so the the isolation of shooting to a to kind of a square range where you have known distances and plenty of time to think through what you're going to do is a great place to learn. But when you're going to go from that into the world, you need to be able to make those decisions on your own and you need to be able to um, kind of solve all of those problems because I've never been anywhere outside of a square range where you didn't have to figure that stuff out on your own. And, And then having a partner there, allows you to kind of bounce back and forth some of, some of that, some of that problem, problem solving stuff. So to me, like when, when somebody says practical shooting to me, practical means you gotta, you gotta be able to see your target. You gotta be able to figure out how far away it is. And then you have to make the decisions that will lend itself to, to actually hitting, hitting that thing. And the only way to do that right now is to go to field matches. I'd agree. Uh, and there's one more aspect that I think is, is ultra critical. It's that inoculation to the stress, right? Like um, that beep, that under pressure type of moment, you know, it takes time to adapt to that. But that, tell me that's not the same situation. I, I hunt a little bit too. You know, when I see that big buck cross, you know, I've been waiting and there he is. Like everyone knows that, that feeling, right? That heart rate, uh, you know, and you, that's when the mistakes happen. Right. And I, that's why I like, I love the matches and I love blind. Uh, if, if I ever can, uh, a buddy of mine, I shoot with the Dan Posey, great shooter. You know, when we go to matches, we like to go first, you know, that way it gave me no, no, you know, you know this team matches, man, competition dynamics does a phenomenal job because you're so separate. You're on part-time. So there's no way I can't really glean any real information. I run into it. I got to engage it, but there's other matches where you're kind of in a squad and you're stacked up. If you stay around long enough, you can get information. Yeah, you can hear that ping that's real close, or you can see another team through the trees kind of moving to the right, like, oh, we should probably set up to the right. And I love it when I go first because it's blind to me, and everything is, is, is new to me. So, yeah, it can hurt the score, 
but frankly, as much as I like scoring well, um, you know, I do this to, to learn where I can improve as a shooter, you know, to bring it back to, to the course here and, and to my own personal kind of like uh, goals, I guess you'd say. So at your course right now, we talked a little bit about the idea of trying to like put off mental fatigue so that shooters could stay alert and stay aware of what's going on. How do you break apart some of the skill sets in shooting beyond um, what, what, what people might just call like shoot, shooting fundamentals? It's a steady progression, right? You, you start with the fundamentals and then you slowly add on and then you add on physical, which is just like here. We, we start without the, the body armor, without the helmet, and then they get in it and then they're never really out of it. You know, we start with, with simple problems that are easy to solve to complex problems to target identification. Um, and, and then we add that time in and we, we, the stress for us is always time. You know, it's just, Hey, time starts now. You got five minutes to, to figure this problem out or time starts. Now you got two minutes to complete this course fire. And that's when you see the wheels come off uh, of some guys. And then the more they do it, the, the less the wheels come off and the more they kind of adapt to it. And the more that they start to calm that heart rate, you know, and then and start to calm down to break a good shot. And uh, yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's even when they leave here, even though it's a great baseline, it, it's nothing more than a baseline. You know, I can't, I can't turn what I've learned in, in, in 10 years of being a sniper and deployments and, you know, all the competitions, I can't give that to somebody in nine weeks. It's just not going to happen. So we give them that baseline of, of know your target. What do you need to, to do to hit that target? You know, how much time do you need to take? Do you need to even get your bag out or can you just throw it up and take the shot less than stable? You know, and you know that as much as anybody that takes time. You look at that target, maybe even by eye, you catch it by eye. And right away, you know, like, I got to go prone. I won't hit this from another spot. It's too hard. Or you'll look at it and be like, I can hit the shot standing. And that's, that's so applicable to what they take when they leave here, when they, you know, when these guys go out and they can deploy, you know, I, I want you to be able to make that decision. Hey, does this, a, do I need to get my bag out and take time on this shot or, or shoot? He's a hundred meters away and doesn't know I'm here. I'm just going to th- throw my rifle up on my knee and take a shot. So, you know, and that just, that takes a tremendous amount of practice. So, you know, we add that stress in. And it starts with the time and then it gets physical and then it gets nighttime. And that's kind of the way it goes. And all three of them together, uh, they can make sure some entertaining days from an instructor standpoint and some hard learning days for the guys on the line, I'd say. Yeah. Well, you've got the benefit of the requirements to get to your course. So that, that does, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, you're not having people shoot in anymore. You are picking people with relatively high, like GT. I don't even know if they use GT scores anymore, but you're, you're picking guys who can, uh, you know, uh, at least think a little bit better. You've got guys that have proved themselves capable of at least getting fit at one point or another in their career. Mm -hmm. And, um, kind of being used to functioning when they're, when they're tired, um, when you start making the problems from, from simple to hard, how are you guys recording and logging? Like how, how would you advise a shooter? Let's say they're listening now and they're saying, Oh man, I want to do all these things. How do you measure and assess a shooter's capability say of, you know, you, you come around a corner and you see that there's a target and you know, it's inside your zero. Can you hit it? 
right? Or, or, you know, what is your thought process? How, how are you recording and, and trying to teach these guys a decision-making tree? I call it a shot process, but, you know, I think of it as a decision-making tree. And then how do you have them record their capabilities? Like how, if, if, if someone sees and they, they, they mill their target and they say, okay, that target's a half a mil, I can shoot it kneeling, but I need a bag. Are they recording it into a data book or is this just something that's being stored in their mind through experience? Like, okay, I know that in order for me to make this shot, I have to go prone or I can shoot it kneeling or I can shoot it unsupported. Does it, does that make yeah. sense? Like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's actually a pretty good lead. I, I think like you said, the, the sh- you know, that shot process, like I, you know, I think there's like an official categorization of that if we're talking terminology but you know bill i have my own shot process you have your own you know you teach it to people i I think by eye you know get it by eye look at it get in the glass and then that determination has to be made right well what do i need to break this and and as you know we talked about the wobble uh you know can can you hold the target if if you can hold crosshairs on that target then it's probably a shot you can make if you can't then you're gonna have to get more stable And, and obviously you start talking combat shooting you start talking maybe in suppressive fire is actually doing the job. So you don't even have to hit him to change the entire battlefield in that moment. That's what a sniper, you know, I think that's pretty awesome. Like, you know, you, you can shoot, miss somebody, which, which is not ideal if you're, you're downrange, but, um, you know, a shot close to somebody could change your mind, which could change an entire outcome. And that person could go back and tell other people, like, I didn't get hit today, but doggone, they were close and they were far. <laughs> yeah, that can that can inspire some fear. I've been on the other side of that coin, you know, in Iraq before, and it, it gets you thinking. So as far as like categorizing it, uh, I look at it this way. Or I think a lot of guys where we work at look at it this way is, uh, it's going to come down to our you know how we're training for that day, and it's always progressive. And you show them what they can get away with and what they can't. So you give them the target that's like, why are you taking so long to break that shot? You're good to go right now. Stop, stop taking forever. Get a bullet down range. That's, that's where you need to be at with that shot. And then conversely, we run them hard. And then you get them a hard shot. And it's like that target's further. Now you have to put that in your Rolodex. You're right. It's hard to have them write it down on a logbook. This is a learned behavior. They have to see it, take the shot, miss, get talked to about it. And then they don't make that mistake again, right? Like I've seen guys, they're on a target, they're on a tripod. There's a lot of stress going on. They're trying to find targets. They're looking at their watch because they're running out of time and they'll break that shot. And then it's like, Hey, how much time did you have left? I had a minute and 30 left. Well, why didn't you stabilize yourself for that shot? They're like, well, I didn't know. I didn't think about the time because they got tunnel vision. I equate Mm -hmm. this a lot to like guys who do a lot of like close quarters combat. The first minute you're doing it, the first weeks you're doing that you're in this tiny tube like you're just staring at your site and then over a year you start to see everything in the room as you enter that room and i think a lot of you can do this with driving is another analogy guys who drive fast or motorcycles at the beginning you're 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 tunnel vision but after a while doing it you start to open up your horizons and see all these other things while still you know performing the task and it's just it has to be done by repetition and they have to see it a number of times and then they can personally categorize like that's a shot in my rolodex you know they flip to that index card in their their brain it's like that's a standing shot i, I should just shoot him right now i got him and then hey that's a, a one moa target at 400 and i'm shooting the sass well i better get stable you know and, and that's going to help me break maybe have a shot to make it right mm-hmm. well i think that's a good point 
I think something stands out there that I just want to emphasize just for the sake of like, I like to make short stories really long is that you're encouraging a little bit of failure so that people reflect on that failure and go through their mind imagining how would I change it if I had to do it again? Is, is that, is, is that fair to say? Uh, 100%. Yeah. That that's a cornerstone of our training in my opinion. I like that. Um, and, and I've heard the uh, stress inoculation kind of out the, out there, especially like with some of the guys teaching in, in the course that in order for you to learn your limits, you have to go past them and then reflect back. You don't just jump in and immediately start running at, you know, full maximum, maximum capacity so that you go, you go past it, you come back, you think about it, you go past it. And so the idea of training and only training for success, it actually delays your progress because that fear of failure is going to keep you from kind of learning where your limits are. And, and I think that, that, um, you know, that, that's common even in, even at athletics, um, you know, especially with, with rock climbing, you know, you're, I'm, I'm, you know, um, with, with rock climbing, let's just, I'm just going to use rope climbing as an example, but you're tied onto a rope. And if you're trying to get better, you're going to be climbing on something that potentially you could fall on. And if you haven't gotten past the idea that you're going to fall and done it enough where you don't think about it, you're never really going to capitalize on, on that growth like you would. Um, and, and so I love that because I, I shoot, I shoot a ton of paper and I'm always talking about fundamentals and the idea of like knowing what your build and break times are, knowing what your capabilities are in terms of accuracy, but also, you know, at what point does it fall apart? Because if you're only ever taking a shot, at a specific tempo, you really don't know where mm-hmm. and and what happens. Like wh- you know what what happens, and and I think that applies to a lot of a, a lot of things in life that have nothing to do with shooting. Like what if you don't if you haven't tried it, then how do you even know wh- what's going to happen? Right? Well, how about you won't even know your true baseline. Yeah, I, I think uh, pistol shooting is well known for this. I remember when I was trying to get good at pistol shooting, I talked to an AMU guy and I told him about my training regimen. He said, you need to miss more. He's a top level guy. I can't drop his name. He said, you need to miss more. I said, really? And he said, you got to run until your wheels run out, you know, because that's where you're going to see your threshold of what you can actually do. And I think that it's weird in long range shooting. I don't think guys make that connection all the time. Right. It seems to be okay. Think like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? Like, or grappling or wrestling, right? Who do you learn best from? You know, the white belt that you run over 15 times in two minutes, you know, or the, the purple belt that, that ties you up over and over, right? You're going to learn better from, from the better, from the harder challenge in that case. And I think that the long range shooting, and that's where I, I absolutely push that. I give the guys almost impossible tasks sometimes, and I know they're impossible, but it lets mm-hmm. them see how far they can get on that task in that moment, um, you know, and then, then we can talk about where they could get better. And I, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you and I, are, you know, eye to eye on that one. Yeah. I like that impossible tasks thing. You see that at sniper matches and field matches. Um, you don't see that at more structured shooting competitions where no, you don't. You've, nope. You, you, you've just got something where, you know, 
and, and, and the idea, right. Rather than just saying, well, shoot, I give up cause I can't do this. You just do everything that you can in the time that you're given knowing at some point you, you just have to start, right. It's like eating, eating the elephant. Like, you know, you just got to start, you just got to start eating. And, uh, and that's something that, that, um, carries over from people who do things as a career, right. Or people that carry things into life is that there's a lot of impossible tasks in life, but that doesn't mean that you just, um, you know, you don't, you don't throw in the towel. You just start working at it and start hacking away. And that, that, that safety factor of you're going to take 10 shots in two minutes. That's, that's almost too safe. Right. And, 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 uh, it creates this idea of scope left and right limits. And you don't want left and right limits when it comes to a lot of this stuff, right? So you got to break down those barriers. And I, I think that's, that's pretty awesome. And that's something that you really don't see like at a PRS or an NRL match or, or NRL hunter, but you do see it like competition yeah. dynamics or, um, like I've heard, um, I've heard exists like at mammoth and at, at, at some of these other events, which I think are really amazing, like set up tasks that are impossible and figure out what you did and what you didn't do and what your tendencies are. And, uh, I think, I think that's pretty cool. Um, when, when you've got students going through the course and they have to, they have to work together, right? Do yes. you, do you sometimes, do you have to rearrange some of the pairings or I had that? That's something that I've always been fascinated with because I've done a lot of competitions as a teammate. And I would, although I'd like to say I'm a good teammate, I feel like, you know, I could always be a better teammate and that a lot of the people that I pick as teammates, um, are just more experienced working with teams. And so they, they don't, I don't want to say carry me, but they tolerate the fact that, you know, I, I screw up a lot, you know, and, uh, Chris, and, don't, and, don't cut yourself short. I, I heard you're, you're not too shabby of a shooter yourself, but, but I mean, like when, when you're working with a teammate, how much do you guys like do peer to peer discussions of what your strengths and weaknesses are? And, and I'm trying to, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get at is let's say a listener, they have a friend that they always shoot with. How can they take like a team match dynamic or, or, um, you know, spotter shooter dynamic and apply that to their normal training routine so that they could kind of amplify each other's strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. I think, um, I'll look at that. Well, just, it, just like you said, um, the guys here, they choose a pair. Um, and, uh, they, they, they choose that pair almost randomly, uh, day one. And then they, they kind of ride that throughout the rest of the course. So, you know, we, we always have, and not to insult anybody, but you got a guy who's really switched on and a guy who's not switched on and, yeah, unfortunately here we can't really we can't break you up. You know, once you guys are together, it's you guys are kind of stuck together the whole time. So watching them work through that is uh it's pretty awesome. And like you said, we have a great baseline coming in because they're all they're all selected to be here, um, you know, by whatever whether you know, wherever they came in in the military, if, if they're in this course right now, they're in special operations, which grades on what? Teamwork. If you're not a good team player, you're not lasting in any of the units out there. So all of them have to like ebb and flow with each other. And it's, it's fun as instructor to try and mentor that and help out. Uh, I think for like, I look at like, uh, people I've helped, you know, get ready for team matches to build what should we do or 
how should we work? I was like, you, you have to work together and, and you have to analyze every, you have to be brutally honest with each other in the AAR, you know, you're in your actor action discussion after you finish it up, you know, what you could have done better and who could have been where. And, um, I, I mean, just think about it. If you go out to a range with your friend and it's like, Hey, we're just going to come up there and find range and engage four targets. Even if we already know their distances because we shoot every day, I don't care. We're going to take out the binos. We're going to laze them. We're going to set up a tripod. You're going to shoot first. I'm going to try and help you spot. And then we're going to rotate and we're going to try and do this all under four minutes. Well, the real discussion happens after the four minutes, right? That's when the, the guys got to look at each other and say, how could we have done that? better where where, where do we come up weak at and i think a great way to do this is in at competition dynamics i loved it i i stopped and waited for sky in dorgan uh my first year there because uh, i wanted to see how they would do it i'm like oh we just shot this here's an opportunity to see what i think is one of the better teams in the nation come shoot this thing and i'll kind of like look at dan and be like hey what did we do how did we compare not not hit wise but in the flow because there's a flow there right? Like each guy has to be looking for work all the time. I've gone to a match before. I've seen two partners. And it's almost like two individuals shooting who just happen to be there as a team. So one guy will be shooting. The other guy's not even glassing, man. He's just waiting for his partner to be done. You know? And I said, man, you're kind of, you're missing out on the teamwork aspect here. Like, even if I do a stage, say you and I shot a match, even if we had a stage four minutes and we kind of buggered it up and I didn't get to shoot at all, but I put you on target, you know, I'm like, well, I came here to shoot that kind of sucks. However, if we did well and I worked with you, put you on targets to me, you know, in the team dynamic kind of situation, that's a victory for us. Cause you know, I did my job helping you out. I think just having that teamwork of always trying to do something to help your partner out is just like, it's so critical and the best teams out there that you'll, you'll watch them. And that's what they're doing every step of the way. Even when they're arguing with each other, you'll see some good teams arguing with each other, but they're, you know, it's almost like a joking argument. And that's just, I let you know they're taking it serious, but hey, maybe not too serious. Do you have specific things that you try to get guys to work on in their dialogue that are kind of that that's kind of universal? Yeah, at one hundred percent. It starts right there. Uh, as, as much as breaking good shots is, dialogue is number two. You, you know, you you got to have the same dialogue. So if it's uh, you know the way we teach here, it's you know, find the targets. So by eye, go to glass, scan, find target range target that dope is is communicated the same way every time and then the shot process is the same after that shooter you know bolt down if they're shooter shooter maybe they're both boom bolt down and then the a mile an hour wind is called you know hey we're looking i'm seeing left to right six miles an hour i see the same quick turn that into math however they do it maybe they're holding wind dots in a tremor or maybe they're just going to go short wind for whatever they're doing right and then hey i'm going to go left 1.2 you know all right left 1.2 bang he breaks his shot the other guy sees it and then comes up with either a follow-on or an immediate correction from where splash happened or trace was last seen to center the target and and I, we beat them up all the time because they start with that flow and then as the course gets on they try and cut corners and when they cut corners on that or any team cuts corners on that you, that is destined for failure now it doesn't always have to be that dialogue when i talk to like you know guys who are shooting civilian you don't always have to do it my way i just think it's an effective way uh, but as long as it's the same and you're, you're that, that way you're hitting all the wickets, right? You're hitting everything you need. You're hitting your wing call. You're hitting confirming target. We're all both on the same target. You know, we're both doing the same things. I think that's uh, I think that's as much of a cornerstone as, as, a, as proper triggers, please. 
I like that. Don't, don't cut corners. And so as guys progress, the more successful teams tend to have more or thorough continuous communication, at least through your course. Like you're, you're watching and hearing and, and seeing that more often than, than guys who kind of start to communicate less. You know, there's going to be a, you go, if we go to a competition dynamics match together and we just stand around and watch, and it's not to insult anybody, the teams that don't talk to each other, you'll, you'll see that they're, they're not shooting very well. They're not hitting very, they're not doing very well. The teams that are communicating the entire time to each other, you will, you'll know it. I see it. I, heck, we just created a test team came up there and totally cut all the corners. You know, you, you thought they were trying to be quiet, you know, as in like, like, like some kind of silent assassination thing. And, you know, they totally bolloed it. And it's like, Hey, why didn't we talk to each other? And you know what happened? They just got so lost in the reticle and the beep of the test starting that they got stressed out. They looked into a tube and they forgot. They just forgot everything. They looked right at us and like, yep, we did that. <laughs> it wasn't even on purpose. That's what we did. Yeah. Man, it's funny how that happens. Like, you know, you, you start doing something and all of a sudden, you know, you're in some sort of a time warp and <clears throat> then it's over and you think, what, what just happened? And, and, it, and that kind of circles back towards the stress inoculation concept of, you know, in order to get from point A to point B, you, you have to go through a lot of this slow exposure to specific skills so that your, your consciousness can kind of stay in there. Do you ever like when, when you're training somebody, cause a lot, I'm assuming a lot of guys that come to your course haven't spent a lot of time with bolt guns or early some, right? It's hard to say, I guess, but, but I can imagine that you're going to get students who didn't grow up with bolt guns yet. They're still expected to perform at a pretty high level. Are there, are there like chunks of skills or chunks of things that you can do with people in order to speed up their ability to not get deer in the headlights when you hit a timer? Oh man, no, um, I don't think so. Just, I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. It shouldn't, I get guys who have come to the course that have never even looked through a scope rifle before, right? This is their first time looking at magnification. Because their training previous was, you know, red dots on M4s. And so when they come in there and they're, hey, here's your scope. And this thing is super crazy to me. I've never even seen one before. But it's actually, um, I think it's a little bit of natural aptitude. Because I've seen the same guy who comes in here with the least amount of experience leaving as one of my top graduates. And it had nothing to do with anything that an instructor necessarily did, Right. It, it comes into some guys just, uh, they adapt to it faster than others. You, you, you see that with your students too. I'm sure you get, you get someone who just pretty quick, it's like their brain just kind of processes the problem faster and they don't make the mistake more than once. And, uh, I, I do see that. And I think you're right because the guys coming here, I see that more often. I teach civilians as well. I see it more often with our guys just because of the aptitude it took just to like, you know, put your foot in this door. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's like a, and I, I guess it's hard because they're already being selected for, but do you, do you feel like that aptitude, some of it is the ability to, to think and process about what's being asked of you or, or to reflect or, or is it just impossible to say? 
Yeah, I think it's some of both. Uh, I get both guys. I get guys who, um, you know, you, you see this too. You need guys who, uh, there's people out there that benefit from 20 more reps that day. They need 20 more opportunities to see it. And then, and then you see it in sports, right? You play football or whatever you know, type of sport like that. You see people who need to see a play two or three times in a good coach's discussion afterwards. And then they repeat it. And then you, you got guys who after play practice is over, right? Uh, they're out there on the 50 yard line, uh, repeating, uh, over and over to drill it into their brain. I think that's, what's awesome about our courses. We start off with you kind of work with me and then over time you work with everybody. And then throughout it, we sprinkle in everyone else's advice. So I, I might say the same thing five times, but the way that my buddy said it was somehow reach that guy and suddenly the light switch goes on, you know, and that's all I care about is the light switch coming on. I don't care how you got it. I don't care if that night you went home and watched a YouTube video and you come back like, Bill, you remember this whole thing you were saying about, you know, X, Y, and Z. I, I watched this YouTube video and the guy explained it. Now I know how to do this. And I'm like, well, I told you that three days ago. However, I'm happy you know how to do it. Let's put it into effect today. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, so basically like what you're kind of getting at is that you've got a group of guys who know their learning style, right? They know what's going to work and what's worked in the past in order for them to learn a skill. And they're not going to settle for not learning something. And so they're going to go out of their way to make sure that even though they didn't get it now, they're going to get it and they know how to pursue making it resonate because it's on them to get through. Is that, that's fair? Yeah. It's the, the most successful students. That's their mindset. Absolutely. So, so like for, for, for like the public at large, which, which hasn't been selected. I mean, you know, you're kind of unique because the army special forces, kind of tradition is you are a trainer, right? You got, you guys go out and you, you teach people and you train people to do all sorts of crazy skills. So they kind of select people who are able to learn and teach well at whatever their sub discipline is, but the public at large, they're not necessarily learning and teaching anybody. But what I think a good takeaway is, or, or at least for me, what a good takeaway is, I know how I learn like athletic skills, so if you said, Chris, you know, I need you to learn how to go fly fish, I would be able to say, okay, I know what I need to learn how to fly fish and I would pursue it. But if somebody doesn't know that, maybe they could reflect on other things that they've had success at and what worked and then try to apply those things that work towards like the shooting. And, and if it means going to the range or, um, you know, doing something kind of, not taking no as an answer, right? Settle for nothing, but I'm going to get this no matter what I have to do. And I, I think more people could learn skills if they look back at where they had previous successes and, and try to make the process similar in shooting. And when, when we do an assessment with people here, um, now it's turned into 250 rounds, but I basically take down the data and then I have to sit down and actually have like a counseling time with them. Like, uh, um, I mean, I, I guess that's the only way I know how to phrase it, but it's like a counseling where, you know, if let's say I sat down with you and, and for two days, I basically had you shoot a course of fire and I wrote down all the numbers, you know, all right, you're pretty good at reading wind. All right. You're pretty good at building breaks. You're pretty good at this. And here's something that stands out that you need to work on. And then I sit down and we try to, we try to find a way for you to wrap your head around 
we need to bring this skill up. How have you learned other skills before? Because we need to find a way to make this happen. Really, it comes down to can that person reflect enough to say, okay, I think, I think this would work. And then we come up with a training plan for the next month where they focus on two weaknesses, like their two biggest weaknesses. But it really requires that person to own and to kind of come up with how is this going to work? Because I don't, I don't know you well enough to say, you know, if you give me a book, I'll read it over and over again. But if I give somebody else a book, they might not read it. Right. So, but you probably know what's worked in the past. And so then we kind of come up with this dynamic of, look, this skill has to come up and I'm going to give you a month to work on it. But you tell me how you're going to do it. And you have to justify it with, prior success in something else to say that this actually works because otherwise you're not going to actually put in the effort. Do you guys, do you guys do stuff like that? Like when you're doing that peer counseling or skill review and, and they're able to say, okay, well I'm going to take this and um, this is what I'm going to do to improve these skills. I think what I try to do on that um, when I look at it, so first we're going to attack all the senses, right? So it's, it's, you know, it's physically doing it. It's going to be in a book. There's going to be a demonstration. So you get to watch it and we're going to talk about it. So we kind of hit everything that, that the common learner is going to get from. And like you said, some, some guys, it's like, um, I, I get guys who are really, uh, like kind of like, you know, they, they look for all the whys. They, they can't just do the how, how do I do this? I get those guys too. I don't really care about the why, like, uh, you know, this technique works. Like, I don't know why it just does. You know? And then I get the guy who's like, Hey, if I don't understand why it worked, I, I can't really confidently do it. And I think what you're really building towards in all this is confidence, the confidence to call when call well, or to call win well, the confidence to know that I can break a shot, you know, at less than a point three at any distance. So therefore if that target is, yay big my weapon system can handle that shot i can make the shot i think that as you attack you're just trying to get them confident in the technique and the execution of it and you're right like each instructor is going to look at their guys and say well this guy learns this way this guy learns that way and we're going to try to attack it um when when i used to kind of do the lineup of who taught where i tried to put a a a repetitions kind of guy more like the high school football coach guy with kind of like my uh like i call like my my deep introspection guy, right? The guy who's really going to dive down the rabbit hole and take out the whiteboard and show why a 0.2 win call, win correction at 700 had no chance of hitting the target, right? He's going to do all the math and show you how much you physically moved the bullet. And, and I, I love it because the, the lights go on for, for either way. You get a guy who sees it on the whiteboard and they're like, I got it. Now I understand why I shouldn't do that, right? Now it's just a matter of not doing it again, which is uh, when it comes to win corrections, in my opinion, it's probably one of the the harder things to do is to teach somebody to be bold, um, in my opinion, for, for, for the longevity of this game. And then uh, you got the other guy who's like, okay, you missed that shot. You repeat it right now. We're doing it again. you know. And as we kind of go both ways, I think it's, it rounds out how you teach. And then um, other than that, you're absolutely correct in saying it's personal responsibility. It is, you have to go home and know how you're learning and how you think about it. You know, some guys, if they study long, they study wrong. So they go home that night, they drink two beers and, you know, uh, have a big dinner and don't think about chewing at all and go come out the next day. Other guys go home that night and they crack that book open with a highlighter and 
turn their headlamp on in the barracks and they're, you know, exhaustively going through the notes trying to figure out you know, why they could be better. I think, I think it's, that's probably one of my favorite parts about being an instructor in general is I get, I get both. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like the idea of pairing the how people with the why people, I guess I had never really thought about it like that. That's pretty, um, really insightful actually. So you can kind of hit everybody with what resonates with them. Um, all right. I'm going to change gears completely now. And just, I'm going to ask you just some opinion things. When you look on the internet about shooting, like gear is, is crazy, right? There's so much stuff that people want to buy versus so much stuff that people want to just do. What are your feelings on the balance between equipment and, and training? Yeah. Um, well, you, you, I've seen a, I think you, you had a post a while ago on Instagram. It's like, you know, gear good or good gear, right? Gear is good enough. Or do you need the good gear to be good? And um, obviously when it comes to shooting long range, you have to start with a baseline of, of some decent quality equipment. After that, I mean, I'm, I'm a big training guy. I mean, you can, you can read the forms, read the books, you know, listen to, you know, podcasts, but you have to go out there and you got to pop primers, man. You have to do it a lot. And, uh, that is like, there's just no replacement for that. You got to hit primers. You got to do quality, quality, a lot of quality work. Um, but I'm a gear guy myself. Uh, I've, I've gone through just about every stock and chassis you can. I've tried six different manufacturers scopes and 12 different cartridges and different reloading guys and powders and all. And the, and the more that I have done that, the more I look back and like, I just saved myself a ton of money. If I just grabbed this stuff and this stuff and left it right there. <laughs> I think, I think a lot of guys like me are, we're all guilty of that, right? Like how many, how many different scopes have you tried out? It just, without testing, you're just like, Hey, maybe this reticle, maybe this scope is a little bit of an advantage. Let me go try that out. And then you, you look back at it and you're like, well, no, it didn't matter. You know, <laughs> if I had trained with that one, I would have had the same results if I trained with that one. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I started, I asked, I think I asked Tom Fuller, I said, Hey, what, what bag should I get? And he goes, get an OG game changer. He goes, but I'll tell you this in three or four years, you're going to have all the bags and you're still going to use the OG game changer. So, you know, wisdom. one way, Tom's wisdom. One, <laughs> yeah. One way or another, you're going to end up buying all the bags and you're still only going to use this one. And guess what? I still use the OG game changer and, but, and I, but, I probably own a dozen of them. <laughs> I asked this though. I read the same post you do. Is that necessarily wrong? Right? Like, no, it's, I've thought about it. It's, yeah. It's somebody's hobby. Well, it's your hobby. It's your, it's your investment, it's your time and it's your enjoyment. Really. If you're not enjoying what you're doing. So, some guys like to just test new gear. Like I am, I'm one of those guys. You know, not yeah. not so much anymore, but it used to be. I enjoyed it though. And now think about what you and I have learned from shooting X number of scopes, X number of stocks, chassis, bipods, tripod, I mean, you name it. We've probably got them all in three different types of rangefinders, whatever. When somebody on the line asked me a question, I'm at a match and I said, Bill, what do you think about you know this stock? And I can say, I own one and here's my thoughts on it. And I can give you a rundown of it. And I think as like a professional in, in competitive shooting, um, I think that's a good hallmark to have, right? And I think a lot of guys who do it a lot end up building that way. But, you know, let's, let's call it what it is. Long range shooting. You know, think about the competition dynamics matches. Those were all diamond targets. 
having good gear was almost secondary to having perfect dope. And that's where like, I got to draw the line. Like it doesn't matter what gear you really have as long as it's good quality, knowing your true data out to a thousand and having a perfect zero. I mean, you guys cleaned stage three that day, which I thought was excellent. I know you dropped one target because you shot the wrong one twice, right? You shot one target twice. So you drop one shot in an eight to 10 mile an hour wind, but those were all diamond targets and some of them were pretty far. So if you'd spent so much time changing bags and trying different stocks along the way, you'd have forgot that you need perfectly validated data so that you can yeah. be a successful shooter. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. That was the first stage. Yeah. We shot the man, but, but those are the mental mistakes that I think add up. Now that's totally different subject than uh, what, yeah. what you're mentioning. I think good dope is fundamental. And, and so hundred percent. You need to know so much. And I go ape shit about this, which is why I like the whole rifle craft stuff is not only do you have to have good dope, you have to know that your fundamentals apply across heights. Then, you know, actually like to give credit where credit's due, the impetus for the rifle craft drill started with, I think it's called the six inch drill. Do you guys still do the six inch drill? Um, where, where you start, you start prone and then you shoot your rifle, you, you raise it six inches and then you raise it six inches and then you shoot from prone till you're basically like as high as you can physically get behind the rifle standing and you, you, you shoot, you basically take a shot or two every six inches from prone to as high as you could possibly shoot, which is a lot of shots to see which heights have a positional shift. Anyway, I got it from an old uh, guy who'd been through your course like decades ago. And uh, I did that test and I thought, wow, it's all over the place. <laughs> but it was also a lot of shots. And so then I slowly refined it. It was, it went from every six inches to um, just six heights. And then it went from six heights to four heights after talking with people. And then I wanted to see how consistent people were. So I asked people to do it. And then one thing led to another. And over about two years, it kind of turned into what is now kind of the, the craft drill. But it certainly wasn't necessarily, I mean, it, it all entirely came from things that I had seen other shooters before, right? So it wasn't like, oh, I got this crazy idea. It's like, oh, shoot, I was trying everybody's stuff. And the very initial spark for the rifle craft drill came from the six inch drill that used to be taught at your course in Fort Bragg. And it highlights positional shifts. Um, and, and so you need to know what positions, like you mentioned before, like, can I make this shot kneeling? Well, if you, if you, if you tend to shoot left kneeling, I would advise not to shoot kneeling because there's a higher probability you won't shoot where you're aiming and then your wind call is going to be bad. And I'm not, a, I, I, I'm not a proponent of, well, sometimes I shoot left when I'm kneeling. So I'm going to add some right wind. Like, no. <laughs> um, but, and then you're dope. Right. And so having good dope, you need to know your positional sh tendencies. You need to know your ballistic data. And then you have to have a good range finder. When you guys, your training ammo might be different 
than the ammo that you take overseas. But you've got good shooting and good performing ammunition when you deploy, right? Yeah, better, I, yeah, yeah. Better than just, yeah. If, I mean, if, if, if I just went to the store and bought factory ammo for, you know, whatever, its standard deviation is not going to be as good as the standard deviation of stuff that you use, right? Would, I don't know. <laughs> okay, all, I, I get. All I get. It. That's fine. That's fine. Back, but yeah, yeah. So, so, but there's there's tolerances that you need to have and understand. Um, you know, if you're going to be shooting small targets that are far away, you need to make sure that not only does your shooting fit into that size of that target, but then the standard deviation of your um, ammunition has to has to fit into there. When you guys make your data cards, is it all basically going back into a calculator or do you guys carry hard data cards um, additionally? Yeah. Uh, well, Kestrel, uh, they got the Pitch 7s, uh, Pitch 700. So, yep, we, we start off with that. We, I, look, it's, it's, it's the tried and true method. We, uh, we chronograph it, the magneto, and then uh, we shoot out, we true the data. And we make sure they line up. We use uh, custom drag curves. And uh, I would say, you know, common army ammo that's used often has probably been, there's probably no more tested ammo out there as far as a CDM than, than, than a lot of the army ammo that we use. So generally, once you get a good muzzle velocity, they line up. And then early on in the course, we let the guys use the Kestrel for data. And I like this, right? you got to know that system. You got to know the buttonology, how to click through it, how to get ranges, because that, that could be something you could do, you know, in, in the real in real life, right? Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, we break away from that and we go density altitude uh, armboard cards, and and memorizing dope by heart. You know, we 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 stress that you should know your 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 meter baseline hold, and then you should know maybe a rule of tens to get you to a, a 430. You know, okay, if I'm Two five at four hundred at you know four thirty I should be two eight so I'll put two eight on him and I'll I'll go take that shot and I should be right there and I think that the combination of density altitude cards which is which is critical like when guys deploy you have to you got to start there because you know you get out off that helicopter and whatever area of the world you're at you know you throw on your, your, you grab a, you could even, before you even got there, you could look up weather and life data and you could be like, okay, I, I'm pretty sure we'll be running, you know, my 3000 cards. So that's the card that's face up in your arm board. And hopefully when you get there, if you got time, you pull out the Kestrel, you check it. Okay. Yeah. We're right. We're within tolerance, uh, which we call it. We usually like to do 2000 as tolerance. So I would make like a, a thousand, a 3000 or 5000 or something like that, or maybe a, a, a negative something and then coming up. And then you, you get there and you pull that density altitude card and go to work. And ironically, at field matches, I do the same thing. Like I show up mm-hmm. and take out my Kestrel. I update it that day and then I'm off and running. The Kestrel goes in the backpack and I don't look at it again. So these guys go the same process. First few weeks, we learn to use Kestrel, learn the buttonology, learn how to use it. It's very important. You know, there's 15 different steps to getting a good, true muzzle velocity or truing your gun, right? There's, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's 15, but it's quite a bit of subtask in there. And then you get a good good readout, and then you go to work. So by the end of the course, the guys don't, you know, the Kestrel is take it out, dope card made, put it away, go to work, you know. And up mm-hmm. to, until ELR distances, that's what gets it done. 
once we put them out to, you know, 1, 1,200, you know, I think about that shot in, in reality. If the target is, if I'm shooting at somebody at, you know, whatever, 1,000, 1,500 meters away, um, I probably have the time to try and make a, a well-calculated shot. Whereas when I'm 700, if my DA card is off a 10th, that's in the noise. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that shot. And I think competitive shooters know that as well, pretty well. All right. So I'm going to jump away from the course and then some to some of the places like, um, like Brian Morgan's. I I haven't been there. Like I, I would, I would like to go shoot there and mostly because the exposure that it, that it has makes it really hard for you to read wind. Right. Um, you know, you might, I mean, having not, never been there, but I have been in the mountains, shot in the mountains where, you know, where you are, there might be no wind and there's no real sign of wind. But when you shoot, all of a sudden you realize that that bullet was exposed to some crazy winds, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. How confident, how confident do you have to be in your shooting skills to believe the things that you see like at, at, at a place like Brian Morgan's. <laughs> I would say if you break shots at Brian Morgan's with no confidence, because you don't know what the heck's going on out there. You are trending with everyone else, man. Those mountain winds, they're a nightmare, which is, which is why Brian, you know, Brian and I are friends and it's a great place to train. Um, he has a phrase and it's perfect. He's like, I think it's like, see it, fix it. And that's where Brian's big teaching point is you, you and I, it's funny though. If I get five guys online, you know, five relatively good shooters. And I say, okay, without telling anybody, write down what you think your wind hold is at that target at a thousand. All five of us, believe it or not, will probably be within a mile an hour or two of each other. Cause once you see winds, you kind of see the same thing over and over. Right. And I've been up there and been completely wrong. And so is he, and so is everyone else, but we'll all kind of see the same thing where you have success in that type of shooting is your body position, your follow through and your ability to spot splash and correct back to targets, right? That's like, that's mountain winds. Cause you're playing 3d winds out there. I guess I would say, I don't know, 3d winds, maybe correct. But in North Carolina, you're playing 2d winds The winds out of the left the winds out of the right. I mean, I guess the wind could be center too, no wind, right? But you don't worry about an elevation shift in your wind out here. Not that I've ever seen at least maybe out in mountains here, but over there, yeah, you'll shoot at a target at 800 meters away. And let's just say your mill hold is seven. So you're holding seven mills or dialed seven mills. And, and you may end up you know, two mills over the target, but dead centered only. You made a great wind call, but the upwind draft took your bullet a full two mills over the top of that target. And how the heck do you call that wind? I think that uh, is, is just, that is just experience. Cause I've shot down in, uh, in Texas as well. And actually first where they got, you know, a bunch of crazy winds down in, in kind of like central West Texas there, you know, and you'll get an aerodynamic jump from a high wind deflecting that bullet up and down, but it's like a, a left to right wind that's doing that. You don't see this hidden, like a hidden wind that you, it's really hard to call. So that is probably my favorite part about shooting up there is building the angled positions. Man, that is so underrated. Everyone gets wrapped up in the, in the elevation holds because you're shooting uphill or downhill. But man, building a position to shoot 20 degrees uphill, comfortable, that's the trick. I mean, that's the real trick of it. So after a trip to a place like that where all of a sudden 
you know, I mean, I, mean, I would imagine like, you know, you go from North Carolina and you've got a certain expectation of hit percentage and performance. And if you carry that straight to Idaho, it can be humbling, right? How do you leave a place like Idaho with training objectives and, and uh, so that, so that you grow from it or continue to grow from it over time? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of your expectation management, right? Like when you go up there, you're assuming your hit percentage that you had in North Carolina, boy, that ain't there anymore, right? That's gone. Uh, you're, you're shooting at 400 meter targets and, and missing them, you know, with their four MOA targets. You're like, gosh, dang, I really messed that one up, right? I think that it's just a humbling experience and your training objectives up there is to analyze the shots. And, and, and a great thing that he does there is he has you shoot at each target like five times. So now he's teaching you that follow through every shot has to, you got to get your level back, right? Like guys, you know, levels a hot button issue with some people, but shooting in the mountains, you're going to want that level because as that gun starts to can't, especially you shoot a high recoil and rifle, like a, like a Norma or 338 or you know, even 308, you know, you have to be diligent to check that level timely, get it back. Remember what you held last time. Remember what you need to hold this time spot that target see if you can identify your hit on the target hey maybe that target buckled right so my next shot i'm going to take two tenths this way you know and then when you bring that back to the east coast you come back out here and shoot this is this is why i think west coast guys got an advantage when you shoot those types of wins and you come out here you know and this is not to say matches on the east coast are easier by any means or the shooters on the east coast are less that is not true at all there's great shooters from both sides but when you come back after shooting at brian's suddenly you start to feel a lot more confident in making wind calls in general, especially making their bold corrections. Cause you shoot, you miss, you know, and you're like, man, I should drag. Okay. I need to go one mil. Right. And it's almost like sometimes guys struggle to miss off the target and move their, their impact a full mill in a direction. But out there, if you're not doing that in high winds, you know, like, you know, as a West coast shooting guy or Colorado shooting guy, if you're not doing that, you got no chance. Like you're going to, you know, you're going to end up missing three times before you finally get back on target. When, if you had started with a correction to begin with, you know, you'd have missed once been on target. And I think that, you know, that, that training aspect of shooting those winds, shooting those altitudes, that inspires that confidence. And when you come back out East and you're like looking at a flat range, you're shooting out to, a, you know, eight, 900, you're like, wow, this is a little bit easier, right? <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of developing confidence through failure. If that, if that, that, that's kind of a theme that I'm hearing from you. And it's a theme that like really resonates with me is that the things that I've always done and grown to be successful at, I've always struggled at. And so you're exposing yourself and you're exposing your shooters and the guys that you train conditions where they're going to have some success and then you're going to expose them to something where that success isn't quite enough. And then they're going to rise to the occasion and then they continue to be exposed to things that they weren't expecting. And then the takeaway here though, is that the type of person that you're exposed to is the type of person that gets motivated by that. Right. And so then, then like, what's the, what's the trick, right? How do you tell somebody like, yeah, you're into this, but you need to stay motivated by continuing to seek things that you'll struggle at rather than just go to the things that you're good at. 
right? Laps. I, okay. So team, team matches. Um, mm-hmm. I've been to a few that were, you know, I, I'd say like, if you, you could hit almost every target and still, you know, finish really well. Right. Like that's, that's sometimes so you have a really high hit percentage, but well, let's talk about a competition or actually, so we run the Coleman's Creek match, uh, all here in North Carolina, the winners last year, the top team, which, you know, Sean Hamilton or Sean Murphy and Greg Hamilton, obviously, uh, anyone team match shooter, those names have probably come across your brain. Uh, probably one of the best teams out there. You know, they won the whole match. And I want to say I could be misremembering, but I think they only hit 70% of the available points. And if they only hit 70%, the team underneath them was like 65%. So my mid-pack guys, you know, 10th place or whatever out of 40, I think we had 40 teams, 10th was like driving around 50%. So that meant, think about this, if there's 100 points at every stage, every stage you went to, you only got 50 points. And I think mentally that can be like deflating for some guys. They're like, oh, they get up and they're like, man, I only hit three targets and I learned a lot, but doggone, I did terrible. Yeah, but you hit 50%. So actually you're back right there with everyone else. It's kind of like a baseball rule, right? Like the best hitter in baseball, if he's on base 50% of the time on base, he's a fan. He's outrageously good. You know, if his batting average is 330 and he takes a walk every day, he's a great, and that means that, you know, more than 50% of the time, he walks back to the dugout with his, you know, bat and, and hat in hand, right? Like, um, I think that's weird in our sport. And I don't know if there's a lot of sports that are like that. Because if you look at, like, other types of shooting sports, guys don't miss that much. They don't miss, you know, I, I'm not super tripped on a lot of stuff, but I think, like, two-gun, three-gun, you know, shotgun shooting Guys are walking out of there like hitting the target, but you know, hitting a, a, a you know a B zone instead of an A, so they're taking a small penalty. So they didn't really miss, you know, they just didn't hit good enough. I think that's like I love that. I think I like because you're talking about failure, like that's failure, right? Mm-hmm. But it, mentally, you have to like turn that gear and be like, all right, well, whatever, we did bad on that one. Let's just go to the next one. And competition dynamics did that. You know, stage one, everyone was windy. I don't know what the high hit percentage that day was, but it wasn't very high. Not at all. Mm-hmm. So relatively in that condition that day, the guys who hit 70% of their targets, they won by a lot, which was like, you know, that's, that meant that they missed three times every time. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think that that's interesting. And I guess you're right. Like the, the lower hit percentage, you tend to see that in the team matches and the field matches. Um, but yet people are psyched, like almost universally, teams are psyched no matter where they place. And I think that's another thing that, that I think stands out and makes me want to just continue to go back to more competition dynamics and, and, and the field style. Actually, I went to a guardian. Um, I've only done one, but it was here in Colorado and the course of fire, like I had heard going into it, Oh, the course fires, you know, they're going to be huge targets and hit percentage is really high. And we're at the mats. I'm thinking, shoot, man, these targets are small and my hit percentage isn't, isn't amazing. Um, and the target package was sent out and, and I don't think they realized like what cameo the, you know, like the, the mountain kind of terrain was like. And so targets ended up kind of small for the stages and the distances that they were at. But yet afterwards, um, they sent out a survey to the shooters and I want to say over 95% of the people had like unanimously positive things to say, even though the average hit percentage was about like 40% or something like that. So, so it's basically exactly what you're saying, but yet 
everybody's satisfaction of the event was through the roof positive. And I think that has a lot to do with just the people that are there and the community and the environment that it's in um, and, and setting the stage for that. Um, that's the true, that's, that's why I love team matches, man. We're, the community is, is so strong. And, and like mm-hmm. you said, the, the guys have fun, right? That's, you know, hey, man, we're all here to, to compete. But the fun aspect of team matches, I just think it's another level. That's not to knock PRS. That's good too. But I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel the sense of like you get kind of like a bond when you when you all go out and suck together. <laughs> like this is a militarism, yeah. right? Or anything like it, you do, your triathlete guy or marathon guy. Like there's a bond that you gain with one another by you know enduring something that's not super super awesome. And I think sometimes the team matches can kind of like, man, we can, we all got our butts kicked today, but we're drinking beer after we're done. We're, we're, we're laughing about how bad we screwed up today. And mentally we're talking about how we can do better the next time. And I, I love that. That's, you know, it's probably one of my favorite parts about it. Thank you. Thank you. You see that even at, um, matches like the steel safari uh, where, the individuals, you know, that, well, they have team, team safari and then they have the individual one, but it's locate range and engage. Right. And, and so you go out on your course and then after the course is done, you know, or after the event's done, everybody wants to talk about, you know, the targets that they struggled at finding, you know, the conditions or, or, or they just want to bond over the experience of gone out and, and kind of struggle, even though they're struggling individually at, at the end of the match, it's almost as if it was a giant team that kind of struggled together. And it, it's pretty cool. And I think that's what maintains the people that do competition dynamics. But you hear about that with the NRL hunters too. Like some, some people come together and say, man, that target was hard to find. But yeah, that was hard to find. And, and that, that kind of bonding through shared experience is is one of those things that I think a lot of people in general just, just kind of gravitate towards. Um, do, um, do you have any plans for, I know your Coleman's Creek match is coming up. I've heard nothing but good things about Coleman's Creek. Do you want to talk about that a little bit or, or is it because it's coming up? Do you need to be say less? We'll say something about it. Cause I think <laughs> it's awesome. sure. But yeah. So we, uh, we, so I shot the first, this is the third year. I shot the first year uh, as a competitor. And then last year, a uh, friend of ours that runs it, so they had like a little bit more help. And just so happened, a lot of guys that, that came in to help were, were SF snipers who are pretty intimately familiar with the, uh, the use of sock sniper competition, which is the special operation sniper competition. And so we understood that match and we're involved in running it every year. And so we say, hey, can we kind of take something like that? And the best we can mold it towards like open invite for civilians. Like, right. Like everyone should come shoot this thing. And, uh, that's what we tried. So we just did everything on like a, a tea time, kind of like competition dynamics. It's still far. You show up and you know, your set off time is 10, 15 and you start, you hit six stages and they're all blind. And each six stages, uh, in this context of our December match, uh, is, is different. And, and so one stage might be a lot more rapid fire. Uh, another stage might be paper. Another stage might be a classic fine range and engage. You know, another stage might put the onus on maybe we uh, put up a screening so that none of your lace finders work, 
but maybe in the middle of your position is a, a shoddy range card with distances. So now you have to judge distance by eye to try and hit the targets. You know, uh, I just took away your equipment. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm never a big fan of, of forcing guys to mill. So we don't, don't really do that. So I like, that's why I put the range card in there. But anyways, uh, we like to say, Hey, like long range shooting is more than one discipline. It's a bunch of them. So let's do them all at once. And I think mm-hmm. the, a lot of guys love the challenge of seeing something different six times. And a lot of guys like the efficiency of it. You know, we don't screw around. The, the, I've run a few matches. The more, let's say, like uh, extravagant you make uh, a stage, uh, the more time it takes, the harder it is to brief, uh, the longer it is for people to understand it. So we keep everything down and in, right? It's as simple as can be so that you can just go prove your marksmanship ability. That's the bottom line. Your, your marksmanship ability is what's tested. And it, that is modeled off of the use of Sox Sniper Comp. It's, it's the same kind of flow. So I think guys really enjoy it for the challenge. And also, you know, you show up at 10, you're done by 2, and you're back at base camp having a couple beers, right? <laughs> for a lot of guys on a weekend, I know that's where I like to be. Yeah. Man, that sounds perfect. I like the idea of a screen that blocks the rangefinder, so you can you can find uh, it, and then uh, just to mess with your head, right? I, I think if someone's listening to this, and they might be shooting that match, you know, maybe put that in your repertoire for for training, not to give anything away. <laughs> gotcha. The um, okay, I have a, I have another random question that just kind of came up when you were uh, mentioning like the multiple skill sets we it's a theme that's been coming up in conversation but but yet i'm not i'm not exactly sure how to wrap my head around it but but you've been you're exposed to so many different calibers i feel like at some point even though i mean even though you could shoot it like a rimfire to a thousand yards that that's not necessarily practical and it doesn't really teach you very much so i feel like that there's kind of a maximum like skill building range right like I'm, I'm sure you could grab your M4 and hit a man-sized target at a thousand yards, but it's going to take a lot of shots because the wind deflection and the ballistics start to fall apart. Do you feel like um, there's kind of a maximum like beneficial range for training with different calibers? Yeah, I, I, um, I do. Like, look, we're 308 shooters, right? We shoot yeah. a trim, probably more 308 is shot here than anywhere else in the world. I mean, if there's a place that shoots more, you know, shoot me a text. I'm curious as to where that's at. It, I mean, I could, it's a lot. And I would tell you with that particular cartridge, like you said, 800 and in it, you know, obviously you can hit further, but you're, you know, like Brian Litz would call like the, the, you know, your weapon engagement zone or the WES factor, you know, in order to hit that thousand meter target in nine mile an hour wind with a 308, you, know, you got to be within a mile an hour of your wind call to be on. Uh, otherwise you're, you're missing. And then as you're rocking that bolt, looking at your correction and coming back to the trigger, you're missing again because your correction's already too late. And, and that's where you're talking about. Like that's what would be better for, you know, a normal wind back. That's now you've got two miles an hour winter with a wind back. Normally you might have three miles an hour of wind. So as you're rocking that bolt, maybe the wind's, you know, changing a bit, but as long as you make a good correction, you're on that target again. And I, I think that, yeah, absolutely. Like there's, there's ranges where, and there's conditions based too, right? Like if I'm out West and I got a 308, you know, it's 20 mile an hour wind. 
I can train in that and it can be fun, but there's a point in time when it's just more frustrating. Cause I'm just like, I'm limited by the cartridge. Even if I'm a good wing caller and I'm making good second shot corrections, I call it getting 308. I just got 308 on that one. You know, I did everything right. <laughs> I met Hopper right. And, and now you're into like, Hey, maybe a, a higher BC bullet would be better. I'm talking 175 Sierra match King. So don't, you know, maybe with a 178 grain, a tip or whatever, you can buck the system. But in general, if you shift down to that six, five and you shoot one forties, well, now you're back in the game. Now you don't have to be so precise. So yeah, 100%. You can find yourself being very frustrated trying to take the wrong cartridge to the wrong distance in the wrong conditions. It's, you're almost not learning. You're just getting mad. I've been there. I'm sure you've been there too. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that, I think it's worth talking about a little bit because it's a combination of factors, but really you can trace it back to it being the wrong caliber or the wrong cartridge for, for the conditions and the distance. Right. I mean, unless you're in a wind tunnel where there's zero wind and then maybe it's not the same conversation, but in the real world, there's always going to be wind. Just, I mean, some kind of wind and distance and the ballistics are going to be played in the favor of those, um, cartridges that are a little bit more optimized for the conditions. And so, uh, let me, let me see what, um, what you think. I don't, this might sound like I'm at odds with Brian Litz and, and I think that he shares a lot of information and all of his numbers are accurate and true. And I appreciate everything about everything that he does, but there's one some of the, some of the graphics that he pushes out there to, to demonstrate what he's trying to express, which, which he does a good job at is that a good shooter or that our standards of reading wind could be at one mile an hour, which I don't think is totally realistic, um, for, for a shooter in the field doing the kinds of shooting that we do, like maybe an F class or Palma or something like that. But for us, like, what do you think, what, what would you consider like a really good shooter's ability to read the wind? Um, not necessarily on their home range, but like, you know, if they go around, let's say we traveled around the country, we did like a, a road trip. And then at the end of our road trip, we averaged our wind reading ability. Somebody that you would consider like a really good wind reader what would be their kind of standard deviation or their plus minus oh. wind reading ability? Yeah. And when you talk to your graphics, you made that question real tough. Cause uh, yeah, if you're, if you're able to read Mirage uh, in certain East coast environments, like I think you can be within that two miles an hour, um, but pick up the same guy and move him down to West Texas and suddenly that mirage just doesn't stand out and now you're calling off a of vegetation and it's not your vegetation. So how that, uh, I don't know, I presume I'm some strong cactus thing or whatever, some type of brush that's, uh, used to 30 mile an hour wind you're looking at it and you're like, well, it's barely moving. And you take a shot and you're like, wow, I was off 20 miles an hour. <laughs> and then, well, that sucked. You know, uh, yeah. you know I, I would say if, that's tough. I'd say if like, if we went around the nation and just pick different spots and you know, it's, it's blind, right? So you show up to, let's just say we go to Idaho, we go to Brian's and we plop down on this hill. We have this, our first wind call today is the only one that matters, right? Cause after that, we got that. So mm-hmm. we take a look around and we make that wind call based off of vegetation. Cause Mirage isn't there, not our home range. We make our best guess off of maybe wind at our position. I would say if we could be within 
sometimes I would say within five miles an hour. And I know that guys going to be like, that's not very great, but that's, that's, in my opinion, that's truth, right? Like calling the right direction sometimes can be that, that can be hard too, right? When you're calling off a vegetation. So yeah, I do agree with you. I've seen the same charts and I do think if you're on a thousand meter or thousand yard F class range, you got flags. Well, you know, I'm sure there's nuances to flags and weight of the material and whatnot, but you, know, you can be pretty dang close. And uh, wait, real quick, I'll tell you, quick, one of the best wind callers in the world, one of the best guys I've ever met, and I'm, I'm telling on him, and I don't want to be mean to him, so I'm going to use his name. We were sitting side by side making a wind call, and uh, we were both kind of seeing the same thing. I took the shot, and we called the wind the wrong direction. And this guy is in books. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it's, you're exactly right. Like, your real ability to call wind unknown in an unknown environment, which is golly that can be a that can be a heck of a challenge yeah i think to me that's a little bit it, you know it, it plays into the caliber selection it plays into the just kind of trying to put yourself in a mental framework of like where should i be you know what what are my training goals um and you know what are the training expectations um and and so I, you know to me you know, I mean, I like that story. I've, I've also shot and had to be the wrong direction. So, uh, recently too. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that happens, but I think that, that, uh, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to tie it back to this cause I got, I've been scribbling down my notes, but, but so I'm going to, for a sec, just put a pause there. I'm going to say, okay, we got 308. You're saying that for training value, 800 and in, <laughs> For training value, let's say somebody's shooting like a two. I mean, I don't think of a precision rifle as being a two-two-three, even though I feel like I can. I can. I can. I, I will say this on this because of my podcast. My very best craft groups. In fact, I have the target right here. I have two targets right here. My two best craft targets. I shot with my gas gun, two-two-three. You know, eighteen-inch barrel. Like you know, I mean, it's a precision two-two-three, but I mean, shooting two-two-three. But personally, I have a 600-yard kind of cap on it for precision. I'll shoot it past, past that. Like it, it, it's the rifle I shot at the Burris Team Challenge. We had targets past 600 yards, but my expectation of hitting isn't the same after 600 yards mm -hmm. because, because of the bullet. I'm shooting factory burger, uh, the, their factory-loated burger stuff. But 73 so I, yeah, the 73, I mean, that, that's like the best ammo I've ever shot in my life, but, but, uh, not, not, I don't shoot for burgers. So, uh, I bought it all, but, but, um, I, but what I'm, what I'm saying by that is that in terms of precision at a hundred, I feel like I shoot my gas gun better than any rifle I own, but I won't go toe to toe with somebody past 600 yards with my two, two, three, because ballistically it just, I can't read the wind to sub two miles an hour. <laughs> and I have a 308 and I shoot that close to as good as any other rifle. I still won't personally, I won't do it past 600 yards because I feel like ballistically my 308, it's an 18 inch Remington 700. It shoots as well as any gun I have, but ballistically, I don't feel like I can shoot it 
and read the wind past 600 yards. But then my six mil, I feel like it falls apart around a thousand. And then my six, five, I feel like I, you know, shoot, I, I could probably shoot to 1500 yards and feel pretty good with the six, five. And then I'm building a 300 Norma, um, so that I could shoot to 2000 more reliably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but I feel like almost all of that to me falls back on the fact that I can't read the wind. Like personally, I feel like I can read the wind here to about two and a half miles an hour. Like if, if you give me not, not if you, if, if I run out and I have to take a shot in 30 seconds, it's not going to be within two and a half miles an hour. But let's say you gave me three minutes with a Kestrel and, and a pair of binoculars. I could probably get it within two and a half miles an hour. Oh yeah. Within two and a half miles an hour. And the fact that I shoot about a one inch craft drill, um, I feel like those are my distance limits. And then I would scale the target size out from that ability. Right. So if I, let's say, you know, just, just speaking in general kind of general terms, like if I shoot a one inch, I'm going to round that up to 0.4 craft size. And then, and then if I've got a two and a half miles an hour win, I'm going to, I'm going to basically say that, you know, 0.7 is going to be at a thousand yards. I feel like I'm probably going to hit that first round. Um, now 0.7 might sound like a huge target to people, but at a thousand yards, if the target's 0.7, I would edge towards my ability to hit it with first round impact with a six mil or a six five over 90% of the time. Right. But that won't yeah. be the same with a 308 or a, or a two, two, three, because ballistically it falls apart. Now you could take that, and probably make it smaller because at that distance, the wind number is different. So that 0.7 at a thousand yards, I feel confident with, um, you know, I would say half a mil, maybe at 600 yards with a 308 or a 223. And I'd feel pretty good about that given my wind reading ability. And, and, but when you combine all these factors of caliber fundamentals, wind reading what are some things that i'm not thinking about um you mentioned stress in terms of um the fact that your clothes weigh a lot when you're at work (laughs) right what's the what's the weight like no i'm not talking about with a ruck you know i'm not talking about you know anything else but just to give somebody an idea of stress like if you were just wearing your street clothes and jumped on a scale and then you had your work clothes on, you know, that, you know, you're going to work and you jumped on a scale. What, what's the difference between those two outfits? Uh, yeah. For, for just like kind of training around you. I, I mean, the, the real loadout is excessive. Like I, I didn't want to get in the numbers. So I've carried a lot, right. With, without right. a back, just, just, I would say on general, like even the guys here, you're probably wearing you know, 40, 40 pounds uh, with, with the carrier, with ammo. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, 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 there's no radios here. We're not, you know, that's, that's kind of gets later into some of the more where we put everything together, so to speak. Let's add in another thing too, uh, and shoot with a helmet on, right? Shoot with a yeah. helmet on, shoot with, shoot with comms. So now you got, you got Peltors on, uh, on your helmet or, or underneath the helmet some way. 
And uh, now you're worried about that cheek weld. Not add in sweat. You know, it's summer. If it's the summer, it's hot. You know, add that in. Man, that, you're exactly right. Uh, you start adding in those little on top of uh, target size, wind, cartridge, standard deviation, your ammo, et cetera, et cetera. Like even just the fact that you're pulling 0.4 groups with your gun now, right? 100, right? If I set you up, you know, add all that stuff in. And suddenly it's like, yeah, these groups open up tremendously. And so suddenly those targets that you kind of look down there and people look at some of the stuff that you know, the military guys might do. And they're like, that's a really easy target. And I'm like, well, under the right conditions, no, it is not. <laughs> it's, actually, yeah. it's actually within the engagement of, of what, what we can do. So yeah, those would be those, um, those extra, those extra little bits that I would just say, just open that group up a little bit. They take away from the consistency I, for me. When I trained up for the international type of competition, which is the one at Fort Benning, you know, I threw the plate carrier. I'm always kind of wearing it anyways to train, but I threw it back on. I threw it, you know, the, you know, lots of, uh, I had the comms on the helmet and I went down and I did the same drill that I normally kind of do slick and uh, it ate my lunch. And I said, all right, can I have to ring that one in a little bit? That's, that's what you have yeah. to do there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I said all the stuff that I said before, into now is that sometimes people kind of roll their eyes and they say like, Oh, well, you know, if your craft drill is 0.4, like my gun shoots 0.1. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I get it. You know, your, your gun shoots 0.1. But if I said you're going to walk around the corner and you're going to be shooting from a position that's potentially like halfway between high kneeling and standing, your point of aim, point of impact might not be, point one from from center and then you add on wind reading ability and then you add fatigue and then the types of stressors that most people don't think about which is like for you you're saying like you know kind of like just an average you guys are there shooting you're wearing 40 pounds of clothes that aren't it, it's not like an invisible 40 pounds when you're prone you're probably a couple inches higher off the ground right yep. Yep. and when you lift your head up if your rifle fit isn't just right having your head tilted forward with three or four pound weight attached to your head is going to be that much harder to have a sight picture. Right. And then when you get fatigued, your head's going to start wobbling and your eyes are going to start. So, so all of these things slowly add up to the fact that, um, there's just so much more, but once you get a handle on that, your capability goes up and your ability to do it over time goes up. And so I think that, that it's easy to say, well, rifle fitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important. Whatever. I'm pretty good. But you don't know until you don't know until you actually get you put on your headgear, right? You put on your chest rig. You put on, and and for hunters or for people that aren't going to wear a huge loadout, um, if if you've got two jackets and gloves and all of this stuff, like it's going to change your rifle fitment, and it's going to change it in a way that unless you spend the time doing it and measuring your capability, you might be going into something with an idea of performance that doesn't match 
reality of performance, right? So when you're sure. training your guys, like the idea of performance, right? The internet, my gun shoots point one all day versus the reality of performance. How, as you scale through your course, are you moving them towards that? You know, here's, these are the expectations of reality and you're trying to put them like, or do you push them past that? Like, so that, that hopefully they never run into something that's as hard as what you put them through. Um, or are you trying to match them with reality or are you trying to push them past it and say, um, you know, how, how do you manage those expectations? Yeah. Paper papers. I manage it. That's been something I've learned over time. Uh, it's gotta be paper. You got to put them in that kit, uh, and have them shoot paper. I, I would say for anybody, uh, you, you, you obviously paper drills are a cornerstone of your training. It is in mine. Um, you just can't replace it. That's, that's the metric right there. Uh, so, so for instance, um, what I would do is, uh, go for a team, even for a team shoot, if you're going to shoot with the uh, range finding binos on and you, know, you got your peltors cause you're shooting unsuppressed, et cetera. Like you got to throw your, like, Add in a high heart rate, you know, sprint down, throw it up, get a range, throw that gun up there and shoot at a, shoot at a one inch pasty and shoot three shots at it. Like it was an actual target, not like three perfectly well, like you're really in the match and that's your pace. That's how you're going to shoot your second and third rounds. If you got to hit a target, say three times. And I do the same thing with them. We'll throw all the kit on. Heck, sometimes you don't need paper. An honest eye will tell you the truth throw your bag down, throw your gun down, get your heart rate up a little bit and just stare at a one inch pace at a hundred with your reticle. You can see what your group's going to be just by raw data. Hey, I got a bill. I got a point three. I'm up left down right everywhere. That's, that's like what I'm holding right now with a little bit of a heart rate, a little bit of you looking over my shoulder Right, <laughs> you know that you're going to break anyways. Stickability at 100 to, to shoot is not a 100 inch group in this context, in this scenario. Right, we're not talking PRS anymore. Right, we've we've gone to much more dynamic. Now it is. Hey, that's your that's where you're at. So what do we got to do to get it down? Well, you need a guy like like you or someone. You know, this is where a good instructor helps. Hey, what's my reality? What should I be at? Hey, with your bag, your equipment. When I did the same thing. I was pulling this group and I think I'm okay. I think that should be your goal. Now let's help you get to that goal. Where can we, you know, and guys do it all the time. They, they, uh, they uh, load the, they load their shoulder too much into the buttstock and now their heart rate is just resonating into the reticle. We, I think we've, anyone who's shot a little bit of high heart rate has done that. So, mm -hmm. you know, how do I kind of like reduce that factor? What does my offhand need to do? Where should my hand go? Because you're, you're, let's just say, shoot as close to your prone group as you possibly can. That's your goal, right? With any shooting is my prone group should be, you know, usually the best. So I want to shoot this gun as close to that as I possibly can. While knowing that in those difficult circumstances, I can't break those shots. You know, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to hit, you know, if they put a three inch target, that's probably field matches i hate it when they do it every now and then but they'll put some obnoxiously small target at like four and four hundred five or six or eight hundred you're like 
yeah, that's just not doable. Not in these circumstances. Like it's a luck shot. We're talking a 10, 10% shot, you know, like mm-hmm. everyone's going to take uh, 10 shots out of one guy. I'll hit it one time. You know, an important thing to learn. And the only way you can really see that is take yourself to a hundred and replicate your, your, your situation. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot.